Hey, it's Ari again. Thanks for listening for a long time, or if you've just come to the podcast, I appreciate you being here. With the 500th and final episode coming up, I thought it might be cool to go back to some fan favorites. I always think it's important to understand where you've come from in order to figure out where you want to get to. So this episode and a few of the following are some of the favorite episodes as chosen by listeners of the podcast, members of the Replaceable Founder Facebook group, which you can join for free by going to less.do slash Facebook. And what I'd love for you to do I don't want you to leave a review on iTunes. I don't want you to go buy something from my website. Listen to the episode and then head over to www.voxwithari.com and get in touch and just let me know what you think, what you thought of it, any new ideas that you got from the podcast, whatever your biggest productivity challenges are because that's the kind of material that I love. And it fuels some of my best and most innovative ideas. Please enjoy the episode. Now here's your host, Ari Mizell. Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Mizell, and I am super excited for my guest today, Merv Sims, who is the president and chief organizational designer of Simplicity Designs in Moncton, New Brunswick. Uh, and uh, so first of all, Merv, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. It's an honor. Uh, so Merv is a expert in uh, performance excellent principles and making processes and, and physical manufacturing, big plants and industrial processes way more efficient. And I, I watched one video of Merv's, I think two months ago, and there were seven or eight concepts that I took from it that have just been really game changing for me. And it's uh, an honor to have you here today. So before we get into some of the nitty gritty, um, can you tell people a little bit of your background and also what performance excellent principles are? Sure. Um, let me just start. I'm a, I'm a graduate chemical engineer, and I was really, really lucky in my career in that in um, my first year, I went to work for Procter & Gamble, and I went to work in their beta test study for high-performance organizations. They had picked Grand Prairie, um, Alberta, and Mahoopany, Pennsylvania to start up the diaper business and got indoctrinated <laughs> as a young person in what performance excellent was. Um, roll that back uh, many years later, 89, I went to work for J.D. Irving in, in New Brunswick, Canada. I uh, spent 23 years there um, working constantly on driving performance excellence into organizations and not only in manufacturing, but in knowledge organizations and in support units. So really, how do you get um, people to constantly improve um, because they want to? The real the real beginning is in 2007, Durindra Shukla, who runs UNB's TME program, Technology Management Entrepreneurship, asked me if I would put the learnings together to help him build a master's level program at UNB. Um, we did that, primarily Durindra driving it, me doing a little teaching, 
Um, and today it's the number one entrepreneurial teaching school in Canada. And Dorinder has over 500 students who, who regularly go through his programs. And so it's been this lifelong love of learning how to do things, how to deliver more value with less work. How can I actually deliver more with less, not deliver the same or ever, but how do you actually deliver more or less? And what we've coined that down to in performance excellence is three key principles. Um, every organization has roughly three parts. It has its purpose, its processes, and its people. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about um, an HR department, a multi-billion dollar company, uh, you're talking about the IT organization down the road. It has three parts. It's purpose, it's process, it's people. My favorite question is the most valuable asset a company has. And most people respond by saying people. Um, what I've learned through performance excellence is to say customer. Um, because they're the ones that determine the value that you create. And so organizations that put value first have everybody come to work every day for the customer versus coming to work for a boss and coming to work to create value. Um, it lines everybody up outside in. Um, I always love the story. They interviewed a, you know, a janitor in a local hospital and they asked, what do you do? And he said, I clean toilets. And they interviewed the janitor in the top hospital in Canada. And he said, um, I get people home to their loved ones as fast as possible. And the question was, but you're a janitor. Yeah. Number one reason for longer stay in a hospital is infection rate. Therefore, what I do is I manage infection rate to get people home. What we like to call the outcome is the big why. Your work is the small why. What you do every day is the F of X that drives that. Most people only spend 20 to 30 percent of their time actually driving value. The majority of the time is spent enabling it or is spent in non-value added activities. And the real secret that, that I believe the performance excellence, and, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of discussion, if you do not understand the problem you're solving for your client, all you can do is take waste out, but I don't know if I'm removing value. So the whole thing of performance excellence starts with knowing the problem you're solving for your client or the value that you're creating in the marketplace. And therefore, you can see the difference between value added time, value enabling time, and non-value added. An area, I mean, I, I love the three things you say about optimize, automate, and outsource, because actually that's what you're doing every day to those processes. And what you don't, you, you, you retain, retain the value piece, um, you automate the enabling, and you get rid of the non-value added. Just get rid of it some way. Um, and, and that's really what productivity or performance excellence means to us. Determining value, understanding your processes that create it, and then engaging people every day in making that happen. So the first principle is customer. Second principle is 85% of your problems, challenges, and opportunities will be processed. Third principle is if you want to create owners, engage them and engage your people in fixing it. Okay, so <laughs> there's so much to unpack there. That's awesome. Um, okay, that's a good start to the episode. Thank you. Um, I think we could probably end there if we had to, but thankfully we, we're not because, uh, God, I have so many follow-up questions now. So, uh, all right. So the first thing that I would pull out of that is um one of the things that you said in a video that i i saw of you that that ties a lot of that together which i i just so struck home for me was that you don't need to make people better at what they do you just need to give them time more time to do what they do well correct um we 
constantly, if you take education, you take any knowledge worker, um, the surgeon doesn't spend their time in the surgery room. They spend their time enabling it, finding it. Um, and so the whole thing is you don't have to get people better at what they do. You just need to get rid of the waste around them so they can have more time to do it. And that's how you create more value is just giving them more time to do what they want to do. Um, one of the, the very basic things I learned a long time ago, um, if you have a welder who's actually only welding 20% of the day and you get it so they're welding 40% of the day, your engagement scores go through the roof. The safety comes down. Um, happiness around everybody is much because they're actually doing what they're paid for, not hunting and looking for stuff. Take that to, today in my knowledge work. Um, if you have a lawyer or a scientist or a doctor or a healthcare professional, when they're actually spending time with the patient, moving them forward is when the business gets lined up. So fixing almost all of our engagement and people issues in a business doesn't start inside out with the people. It actually starts outside in and being very clear on what value is and ensuring you're giving people the time to create it. So what does that look like in a sort of systematic way, right? When you approach a new organization, like where, where do you look first? Very first place we look is, is what is the problem the client's solving? What, what um, you know, most organizations create products and services, but they don't think about it from the term, the job they're doing for the client. Um, and so the very first place we start is, what differentiates you from your competitors? What value does your client see in what you do? And, and clearly understanding that. Uh, then when we analyze work, we analyze it from the standpoint of very simply value added, value enabling and non-value added. So we can understand. I, one, of my, one of my favorite stories is a, a guy running a construction company used to drive up to the site and worry about whether the steel was connected. He had enough, you know, he had enough uh, supplies on the site. Um, did he have enough people on the site? What he wasn't concerned with were people actually having hands-on doing work. Um, he drove up to the site and he looked at it through the lens that we taught him. And he immediately saw a whole whack of waste around people that he never saw before. For example, where the Johnny was sitting. Uh, where do we store the, the supplies that people have to walk and get? Um, how can we have one group enable the other group so they can get their work done faster? He just started seeing waste instead of seeing, do I have the stuff to do the job? And, and, and that's, that's where we want to get leaders to. So really understanding um, what is waste and what isn't. Um, we, and, and you see this um, over and over again in the professional world of people putting more times into a file, more times into a case than is required. Because as a professional, they think that's good work, but it didn't create any more value for the client for them to make the decision they needed to make. So one of the things that I often say with people is that perfection is the enemy of done, right? And so, you know, there's all these superfluous things that go into projects sometimes that, that as you said, that people think that's the work. Uh, but at the end of the like, for better or worse, I am the kind of person who will put out content, I'll write it, I'll maybe reread it once and fix it up as quickly as I can, but I essentially just put it out like as it is. And to me, if it's content that the information is useful, then it doesn't really matter if it's not, you know, the, the, if the grammar isn't perfect or things like that. And obviously I don't want to be sloppy, but at the same time, 
it's like I feel like the the value delivery is is more important. Eric, I couldn't agree with you more. What we do is we put the content together, vanilla, put it in front of our clients, and then ask them what went well, what didn't, and we just keep modifying it with each delivery, um, and and how the client and have the client modify it for us based on where the value is created for them. So we do the exact same thing with content. Um, uh, my, my saying is a little different than yours. is just perfect's the enemy of improvement. If I search for perfect, I never move. Um, versus every day, how do I raise the bar and close the gap? Every single day. What is the one thing that can raise the bar and close the gap that happened today? Yeah. So the, and, and then the other thing that I tend to see a lot, and it, it sounds like you're seeing that as well, is that people seem to come often with the solution rather than the problem, right? <laughs> well, we've been trained that since, since we entered school. Since you entered school, what did the teacher ask? Who's got the answer? We've been trained since, since we've been walked that what we give is answers. What we don't do is discuss problems. Um, and, and one of the things in, in our model um, that we've learned is there's purpose process people, and there's two kinds of work. Work I do every day in the organization and work I do every day on the organization. The example I use for people um, it happened to us recently. We're driving down the highway and the car got caught in the slush and the car starting to spin. Well, the person driving the car didn't say, Merv, open the glove compartment and tell me what I should do. <laughs> um, he needed a solution right then. And he did it, held the car on the road. That's, that's in work. In work requires a solution right away because the client's in front of me, the issue's in front of me. But on work, when I work on my organization, I better be working on the right problem. So on work is all about problem definition. So take that incident on the road. When we stop and talk about, we have to go back and say, let's identify the root cause of this. What's the problem we're trying to solve so that wouldn't happen again? Um, what would that look like? And so on work, when we work on organizations, everybody comes with a solution. What we actually do is make sure we're working on the biggest problem you have in creating more value for your client at a lower cost. And we'll sort through the problems exhaustively because a huge waste in companies is working on something that's not a constraint to give you more value at a lower cost. Most things organizations are working on to make their organization better doesn't actually remove a constraint. And I just find that time and time again. So most companies well, I may have a hundred or clients or a thousand clients or a 10,000 files I'm working on in. I want to know what's the one problem. If you solve it in the next 90 days, has the biggest impact on your business from creating more value and delivering at a lower cost. But how do you get to, you know, I, I mean, it's probably a longer answer than you can give right now, but how do you start to get to that? Because I feel like people are just so tunnel visioned a lot of times, like it's hard to break out of that. And, and I, so far as like, I'll even have clients where we're talking about something like, no, 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 that's not it. We like, this is what the issue is like, no, no, really, <laughs> we need to talk about that other thing. Uh, well, the first thing we do, it's called whole part whole. We won't work with an organization and we do all sizes from two people to a multi-billion dollar company. We won't work with a company until their leadership team has gone through our five day program. So it's one day every second week over 10 weeks. And that's the whole leadership team because we need the leadership team to see their organization outside in first. And almost every one of them sees them inside out from the accounting department, from the service department, from the shipping department. They don't see them from the customer. 
That's the first thing. So right at the top, we put that customer. The second thing then, after we've done that, we want you to map, and we do this at a very high level, we want you to map your organization end-to-end so that we can identify at the high level the constraint. So very simply, is your, is your constraint brand? Is your constraint the way you innovate? Is your constraint the way you market and sell? Is your constraint the way you produce and deliver? Or is your constraint the way you do customer service? And by the way, that's just very simply the Porter value chain. Very great tool. We just, we ask that very high level question at the business level, which, which, which is the number one constraint? And of course they'll say all, but we'll dig until we find which one. And then we'll dig down in that end to end. So if they say sales, we'll say, is it finding new customers? Is it starting them? Is it maintaining them? Is it growing them? Which is, if it's sales, which is the constraint in there? And that's called a tier two. And then once we get to the tier two and we say it's finding, okay, in finding new customers, where's the issue in sourcing? So we'll barrel from a business level perspective to a tier two, to a tier three perspective to find the constraint. And that usually takes three to five days. And what's, what's interesting is it took us a while at the front end. Now our clients that we're getting because of the referral, they'll often say, we don't have time. And we say, well, then we're not going to work with you. Because if you won't put those five days in and those three days to find your constraint, then that's the go, no go for us. And so we just, we, we lay that out right up front with the clients to get there. And, and, and a lot of people, and it takes a while to get them to want to make that kind of investment. But I also ask them, how's what you've been doing lately working for you? You know, you want to do, you know, the insanity thing, you want to do more of that? Well, go ahead. That, that's not us. Yeah, I, I, I see that quite often. Uh, <laughs> do you, for you personally, what, what tends to be more intellectually stimulating, finding the constraint or solving it? Solving it's easy. Finding it's really I, I, I thought you might say that. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, solving the constraint, there are thousands of tools out there to do that. Matter of fact, there's lots of people trained in how to do that. That's not the issue. The issue is getting the leadership team to become subservient to the constraint when it's not their area. That's the single biggest issue. Um, because we've had this management by objectives for so many years that everybody in every business is supposed to make it better. And that's a huge mistake um, because there are certain areas, quite frankly, that don't need to be get better in the next year or two years. Um, they're so far from the constraint. They're, they're over-engineered. They're over-developed. It doesn't need to be done. Um, and quite often, the strongest leaders, you'll find their areas aren't the constraint, but they're still making them better. So, so our whole thing is to drill into an organization so the leadership team becomes subservient to the constraint. And it goes right back to a book I read many, many years ago called The Goal. Um, and if anybody hasn't read it, it's, it's still a great read and um, it's a great story. But, it, but it's not the, you know, we're good at finding the machine constraint. That's why Taking this from the manufacturing floor to the leadership team is actually the secret. Um, I'm, I'm not as interested in where the manufacturing floor constraint is as I am in where's, where is the business constraint. Um, and then you drill into that. And, and we find all kinds of examples of where we have to re-engineer engineering teams because they get things to the floor too late. They get things to the floor too incomplete. 
and everything you see on the on the floor is caused by that. Same thing in um, legal firms we're working with, getting all the right information up front and doing the right triage of the file up front is actually the constraint to getting the right person on the work. So one one of the interesting processes that we've been working on lately with a, a very large mortgage company is their loan origination process. Yep. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating process because it's, it's like the most convoluted decision tree I've ever seen, you know, because it's like this, well, is it this kind of loan or this kind of loan? Okay, it's this kind of loan. But now it depends if it's this or this. And if it's this, it actually may go back to the first kind, you know, and you get this like sort of crisscrossing thing. And there's a lot of wasted time waiting on people to get back to you with the title or the insurance information, for example. Yes. Uh, and so like the, in that situation, the constraint is usually like the follow-up or the relationship maybe that the, the loan officer has with those sort of providers or just honestly getting other people to respond, you know? And so that's, that's a hard one to fix. No, um, getting the right information at the right time. Um, so one of the things I learned from Michael Hammer a long time ago is we actually have it backwards in most companies. Um, if you, if you're running a high end technical call center, so you're in, you're, you're supporting an engineering organization somewhere. When you call for, for, for information, when you call because you need their service, you should talk to the most experienced person they have. That's just, you should answer the phone and they should triage it very much into, is this a simple flow, which means it's just going to go easy. Is this a complex flow, which means I need some technical help? Or is this a complex flow, plus flow? We've never seen it before. We need to figure this out. And that way it's got to go in front of the team. So the simple ones just flow through. The complex ones have to see some technical assistance. The complex plus ones got to get in front of the team. The most important part in that whole process is triage in that first question. Because when it comes in and it goes to the wrong place, it just starts going in circles until it finds the right place. Same thing to me, if I was running an emergency room and I had a person walk in, the most experienced doctor is who would meet the first patient, triage them right away. And so that you get into the right flow. Because what happens from decision trees is you're jumping from flow to flow based on what's happened. And you can't replace the competency and experience in a decision tree. So you got to put them together. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, that makes sense. Um, so the next sort of, it's not a concept, but the next thing I want to bring up was the, uh, the shadow board. Yes. So this is uh, for, for people who don't know a shadow board, everyone's I'm sure seen one, but basically if you have a bunch of tools or cleaning supplies, whatever, it's wherever they hang up on the wall, there's like an outline or a, a, a shadow of the shape of the object that would be there normally. And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that, uh, you know, where everything goes, but secondly, you know, when something's missing and, this is a concept that is fascinating to me because it's in the automation space, in the digital space, it's one of those things where you, you, you don't have something like this. It's a really fascinating thing because a lot of time is usually spent and lost in processes with people looking for files. Correct. Right. But there's, there's no shadow board necessarily for a Google Drive. Correct. Right. So have you like, but, but just the concept of the shadow board for me is something that I think about a lot. And how can we show? Some, you know, when something is missing, basically. So I, have you, I mean, have you seen this used in sort of other environments? Yes. Yeah, so let me, let me start with this con this concept. You're familiar with right brain, left brain, I'm sure. Absolutely. Your right brain picture, motion, left brain, uh, analytical. 
you only have 12 to 20 good decisions in you a day. This, the science is there. Oh, I've used the left brain. I hope Get everyone it. heard that. <laughs> right, me? I hope everyone heard that. that. That's what you got. Most of us waste them, half of them before we get out of the house. Yeah. So for example, I have blue week, then I have gray week, then I have brown week. And, the, and, and I don't think about what I'm wearing. My favorite shirts are shirts that have gray, blue, and brown stripes. Makes life really simple. Um, <laughs> because I don't, I, cause, cause we don't know the difference between choosing our shirt that we're going to wear today and that billion-dollar decision. Right. So let's go to the shop floor with that. A shadow board is a visual tool so I can make a decision without using the left side of my brain. You drove, did you, did you drive today anywhere or um, have you driven a car in the last couple of days? I, I took my kids to school this morning. Perfect. You got them to school safely this morning because of the visual process of driving on the highway. And you didn't have to make decisions to do it. Green light, red light, yellow light, you just moved with the right side of your brain and you didn't have to waste decision power. As a matter of fact, you could save that decision power for your kids. The shadow board is simply a visual tool to save you to make decisions on where did I put that tool? Where did I find it? So once again, then setting up your, your where you're storing things visually so I can get there without having to think about where I left it and why I put it there. Um, and so I have two little sayings on productivity. One, put your toys away where I can see them. Two, go to bed. If you, if you do those two things, you win in life. Um, and, 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 and so when, in my garage, right as soon as you come in the garage, right on the right is all the cleaning supplies. Not at the front, not stored. They're right there in the inside the door, and the hose is there. On the left side of the garage, it's in, it's in, used to be all my Harley stuff. It's now all my biking stuff. Not at the front of the garage. It's right inside the door, and it's on an open shelf, so I can see whether it's there or not, and I put it back on it. So, And, and I'm just moving homes now, so I get the same thing set up again. So one of the things that starts to happen, it's not so much the shadow board concept as the shadow board concept represents the visual workplace or the visual representation of the process. So I don't have to waste decisions. I can save them for the good things. Yeah. Okay. So that's perfect. That's the framework that I was looking for there. So like somebody who works in an office, for example, how, how, I mean, how could they use that best in their own work setting? So for example, um, have no doors on your cupboards. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Zero, zero, you should never have a cupboard door on. Everything out where I can see and put it back where it is. Um, similar to how you set up your computer screen, um, have it visually so you can go go into the number the places you want automatically without having to go to a file drawer and try to remember which file it was in. Everything within arm's reach. Everything within arm's reach. And, and the visibility. And once again, though, the, the secret to productivity is putting your toys away where you can see them. <laughs> that's the quote of the, that's the quote of the episode. <laughs> um, and, well, and so when you're working through this with organizations with people, do you ever run into an issue with like a balance between them feeling like you're marginalizing them where, I mean, it, it, you've already explained and I, agree that you're really enabling them to do more of what they love, but 
do, do people ever feel like they're just becoming like cogs in a machine? You know, you're just removing all possible waste so that they can just do this one task. Well, here's really the secret. So if you think about purpose process people in in work and on work, you get stimulation driving your kids to school. It was it was the conversation with the kids that was the stimulation, not the actual driving in work does not motivate people. They're not motivated by in work. They're motivated when they have the opportunity to solve a problem. Yeah. Um, and so what you move people from is completely engaged in their problems so they can remove that waste. So they become waste removal is the game, not my in work. Because I need a game. I got to play a game. Life is a game. Work is a game. That's why we keep score. Um, and, 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 and so you change the game from you must get this result to we must improve at this rate. And so you move the game from achieving an outcome today to improving that outcome every day. Kaizen. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. Um, but most of our leaders have been created to have answers, not questions. So my definition of a leader is a person who knows how to ask questions, the right questions. My definition of a manager is a person who gives answers. Oh, I love that. Okay. That's awesome too. Um, all right. So the last question that I always like to ask in these interviews is what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? And you can interpret that however you like. Ultimately, and it'll come back, know the problem you're solving, whether you're within an organization or your organization, because the problem you're solving is creating the value for that client. And, and so one, do you know the problem you're solving? Probably, probably the second piece of advice, um, and, 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 and even at 58 years of age, I'm spending a lot of time still learning it. Your body is your engine. Um, the fuel and the way you treat it really matters. And so you can't make a poor performing engine productive. And, and so how healthy we are. And then the third thing is really learn how to engage people in solving that problem and multiple. I mean, the, the whole lean six Sigma movement, um, the total quality movement, uh, the engagement movement, all these movements were about engaging people. What most of them miss, are you working on the right problem in the first place? So to me, it's knowing the problem, being a healthy change leader, and then knowing the questions to ask to engage people to, to solve that problem every day um, and become a question asker, not a, not a solution giver. And I'm a big fan of the five whys. And I, I remember once my oldest son, who's in this business with me, um, he was asked why he was such a critical thinker. And he said, I come home from school being bullied and know that was wrong and leave having empathy for the bullier. You got to understand both sides of it. And that's understanding the problem from, 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 from the perspective of you and the perspective of the client, where the client's perspective is the most important. Yeah. So I, I, would, I would probably say those would be the, the three keys. Uh, well, so those are amazing. And just I'm going to wrap that up with a very small joke, which is uh, I'm trying to remember what the profession was. But basically, somebody was saying how like, oh, I, I, I don't like talking to a teacher or something. I really don't like teachers. And he's like, why? It's like, because you guys just you're just always asking questions. And the teacher says, what's wrong with that? <laughs> so 
I, I think that's a nice way to sum it up. So Merv, thank you. That was uh, beyond enlightening. And uh, where can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Um, just really our, our website, simplicity with a Y, S-Y-M-P-L-I-C-I-T-Y dot C-A. Um, jump on. You can, you can see what we're up to. Uh, and certainly just Googling my name. There's some good stuff out there. Um, as your friend Dan was a key contributor, um, he's a great interviewer. So love, love, love working with him, love talking with him. So yeah, Dan's great. So thanks again, Murph. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing Podcast. 